Amen. You can grab a seat. If you have elementary age kids or uh, below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids Time. Follow Miss Eloise right out the side door there. Middle school age kids, we have stuff going on for you all as well out there in the little gathering area, space-ish, whatever we call that space out there with all the cupcakes. Uh, help yourself. Not taking them home. So eat up. Uh, we are glad that you're here. Again, I'll reiterate, if you are here for the first time, this is your very first time with us. We are, are really honored and privileged that you would be here with us this morning. Our hope uh, in all of everything that we long for you is just simply wrapped up in two things. One, we hope that people are really nice to you. And two, we hope that you have an encounter with Jesus. And that's really the end goal. Our goal is not that you would come back again or that you would be entertained or any of those pieces, but simply that you would have an encounter with the risen Lord, and that people would make you feel like you're welcome here. Because our whole heartbeat as part of this community is that we love being together. And those of you that were able to come on Thursday to our Monday, Thursday service kind of realize that part of what our nature is is that we just enjoy spending time together. It's the way community is built and developed. And so uh, we'd love for you to, to want to come back, but more so we'd just love for you to encounter people that you say, man, these people are they're authentic and they're just real. And so we are glad that you are here. Uh, we are actually kind of moving through the Gospel of John. We've been doing it for some time. We're actually into week 50. So we have spent 50 weeks going verse by verse, line by line, section by section, through this entire Gospel. And it's brought us to this really unique place where we have landed on, sort of as John opens his Gospel, we land in the middle of Holy Week, right? In the last week in the life of Christ, and John has brought us all the way, and we happen to land right into John 12 and 13, where Holy Week is unfolding, and so it's a really unique kind of perspective because we're looking at this text in the concept and in the place of Holy Week where we are standing today. And so for the past few weeks, we've really began with Palm Sunday, right before Palm Sunday. We began with the process of Jesus riding into town on the back of this baby donkey. Brandon unpacked the two Sundays that I was out of town, and we looked at sort of the, the, the deep disbelief or unbelief that the Pharisees have in who Jesus is and the depth of that hatred and how, how strong that runs. And Jesus is starting to talk more plainly and clearer about what it is that's going to unfold in the next few days. And so we, I have decided that we're just going to kind of keep in that trajectory of John because what unfolds in our text this morning on 13, I think impacts and influences what we think about the resurrection. They actually go really strongly kind of hand in hand together. And I don't know what brought you here this morning. Like I said earlier during our kind of announcement time, the truth is, is that we really have come here for all kinds of different reasons. Some of us have come because, well, it's Easter and you go to church on Easter. Or I'm with my family or my, my parents or I'm with my, my children. And so I, I'm here and, and, you know, that's great. Some of you are here because you come all the time. Some of you are here because, hey, this is a great day to try church for the first time and see if it doesn't disappoint me. We bring all of those things in here. Uh, at the same time, and it's really a unique thing because that's kind of what's unfolding in history is that expectations and the reality of who Christ is are not really lining up. And we know that through our kind of study of Holy Week and what we looked at with Palm Sunday. We know that what unfolded on Palm Sunday is Jesus rides into town essentially in his own death parade, right? On the back of this baby donkey in from Bethany with people chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? Lord, save us, is what that translates. There's more going on than people just wanting a political king, right? Jesus was coming to redeem all of humanity from sin and death. We know that there's more that unfolded on that Thursday night that we celebrated just a couple of nights ago. 
that night in which Jesus would, and what we'll look at today, where he removes his outer garments and ties a towel around his waist and begins to scrub the disciples' dirty, manure-filled feet and tells them to go and do the same. And then after that dinner where he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you, just hours before he would be betrayed and abandoned by everybody that he loved, right? We know that there's more to that bread breaking and that foot washing than just sort of ceremonial rituals that we should do together when we gather. There was deep theological truth buried in the breaking of Christ and the shedding of his blood. And what we'll see today in the foot washing, deep truth about what it means to be cleansed by Christ. And then we have that crazy time in between this moment of the Last Supper and Jesus standing before Pilate that evening time where he would go to the garden and he would fall on his knees and he would plead with the Father, if there is any way for you to take this cup from me, begging his, those that are closest to him to stay awake with him, yet they fall asleep, right? And then a torch-bearing mob carrying swords and whatever else they have come and, and arrest him, betrayed by the kiss of someone that he had spent three years with every single day. And every one of his disciples runs. And Peter, who was one he was closest with, will deny him three times before dawn, right? And then we have Jesus standing before Pilate, sentenced to be crucified. The Jews calling for Barabbas, a murderer, calling for him. Free that person and crucify Jesus. And then Jesus walks, carrying his own instrument of mockery and torture, out of the city gates and up on the hill, and he's crucified and killed. And all of creation mourns, right? We have earthquakes. The sun goes dark. The, temple of the, curtain was, or the, temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The guards standing at the base of this cross are saying, surely he was the son of God. And then, of course, we have Sunday, where Mary and the other Mary race to the tomb, and he's not there, and Peter and John come running, and he's not there as well, and Jesus appears to them and calls them not to be afraid. And there were so much, so many, so many questions, right? It wasn't all hand-clapping, jubilation, everybody's excited. It was what's happened and what's happening. We see that on the road to Emmaus, the two guys are leaving that Sunday afternoon, and they're dejected. They're broken. They don't understand what's happened, right? There's a lot of things that are wrapped up in this day that are not just dress your kids really nicely and hunt for some eggs and do those kind of things and make sure we make it to Aunt Melinda's for ham. There's a lot of complicated things that go into that, and a lot of that is why we're here. We fill our spaces on Sunday because we know there's something incredibly important about this day in terms of my religious roots. We know and believe that Jesus is God. We believe that he's raised from the dead, and of course, this is the Sunday that we have to come and pay tribute to that. But most of us know that there's so many more complexities that are going on in my heart, right? Is this God real? What do I do with my doubts and my fears and my anxieties? What do I do with the fact that I believe that this year has not been a great year for me, that we have had struggles and we've had loss and we're on the brink of whatever this is. My marriage is barely held together. Our lives are doing this. Our kids are this. Or nobody knows these things, right? It doesn't all look like Easter for me in terms of my Christian life. And we're gathered here with that reality. And what makes this amazing for me is this is really how the disciples in all of this process really were. They had more questions than answers. Jesus was telling them things they didn't understand, right? And they were trying to figure out exactly who he was. And we have the beauty of hindsight. And yet they were standing in the middle of this. And Jesus is even going to have this encounter with Peter today where he says, you don't know yet what I'm doing. 
And they were living in the middle of this complexity of the Christian life. And so this morning, we're going to see that unpacked and unfolded. And so for whatever reason you're here, right, I just pray that you would open your heart. For the next few minutes, open your heart and just say, God, I want you to to just show me who you are. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into John 13. Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for truth. And I thank you that truth is not a subjective reality, it is a person. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, your promise, and it is living and active. I thank you, God, that what separates what I believe from every other world religion is that you have been raised from the dead. And I thank you, God, that I can do nothing to earn or merit your love. And neither can anyone in this room. There's not a single thing that we can do to make you love us more or less. And so, Lord, I pray that just for the next few moments as we open your word and we gather together, you would teach our hearts. On this Easter morning, you would teach our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask God to open your heart to who he is. Even if that's weird and you're here for the first time, we do this each week. We just want God to teach our hearts. So just pray under your breath if you need to. Just, Lord, open and teach my heart. Take a moment and pray for that person beside you. Maybe you came with them, maybe you didn't, maybe you know their name, maybe you don't. We want to be a church that's always praying for the people around us in our lives. This whole thing that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you. We want to be a people that are deeply concerned and in love with the idea that God works in other people's lives. So just pray for them, even if it's your husband or your wife or your children or your neighbor, just pray that God would move in them this morning. Lord, we turn this time over to you. We ask you to reveal truth to us. We know that we cannot discover truth on our own. Your word is living and active, and so, God, we pray that you would make it come alive in our hearts and our lives. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, so we don't take that lightly. Open our hearts and minds to Jesus, the risen Lord, this morning. Amen. So John chapter 13, here's where we kind of come to in history. We are in the last week of life of Christ. We're actually on Thursday evening, the very night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, The night that all will run away, every single one of his followers is going to desert him and is going to be left standing alone at the hands of an angry mob. That night that Judas is going to betray him with a kiss, he's going to walk up and kiss his cheek, signaling to the Pharisees that this is Jesus, as if the Pharisees needed to know that, right? This is the very night that Jesus would be betrayed. He would be marched from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to Caiaphas' courtyard where he would stand trial, where Peter would stand huddled next to a fire and deny him three times before the rooster crowed. This is that day. And and Jerusalem is packed with people, right? They're there for the Passover festival. It was one of three pilgrimage feasts in the life of Judaism, and this was the big one. They went to Jerusalem for two main purposes. One, to remember that God has delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. The Holy Spirit has passed over their doorways that were marked with the blood of the Lamb, And he has taken them out of Egypt and into the promised land that he has passed over their doorway. And they also came this year to sacrifice for the sin and the sins of their family. And it was an incredibly important pilgrimage holiday, and it was packed with people. And on Thursday, they celebrated a traditional Passover meal. 
And Jesus and the disciples, as we talked about Thursday, for those of you who are here, they were celebrating that meal. They'd come to Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, knows that this is his hour, and they have gathered in the upper room to celebrate this Passover meal. And let's look at 13, and we'll go down through uh, 17, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. This is what John says. He says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has a bath needs only to wash his feet. The whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. We had finished washing their feet. He put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand <clears throat> what I have done for you? He asked. You called me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, and that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you must also wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do, and I have done it for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things. You will be blessed if you go and do them. Pretty familiar story, right? Uh, it actually has even some cultural crossover. We all know that when we talk about washing feet, it really is an idea of, of servanthood, that we're serving someone if we're washing their feet. We understand this idea. It's one that we're familiar with. It's a story that gets told about Jesus all the time, that he washes his disciples' feet, and then he commands them to wash each other's feet. Therefore, do as I have done, and we kind of wrap it up and leave it there. But if you really think about what's going on, all right, if you really allow your mind for a moment to think about the scenario that's unfolding, this picture should deeply disturb you. It should make us feel radically uncomfortable. If we really look at what's happening, it should make us go to a place where we don't like what we're seeing. In fact, we're going to see that out of Peter. Because here's the God of the universe, the God that made the stars, the God that formed the trees, that breathed life into your very lungs, removing his clothes and scrubbing the dirt and garbage off the feet of humanity that in a matter of moments, hours, was going to abandon and betray and kill him. The image is actually disturbing. But what's unfolding here is John sets us up by saying this. Jesus knew that his hour has come. Now remember, up in, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, it has not been Jesus' hour. Every time the Pharisees tried to seize Jesus, he just magically vanished through their fingertips. But his hour has come, meaning all of Jesus' life and ministry have led us to the place where it is now time. And Jesus knew it. And John says, showing them the full extent of his love, he stands up and he removes his outer garments, and he ties a towel around his waist, 
and it gets a base in his hand, he begins to scrub their feet. Now, we all know that this is a dirty, awful, nasty job. In fact, it's a job that was below the job of a servant. I read this week that if a Jewish person had a Jewish slave, they were not required or permitted to allow or ask the slave to wash their feet. It was actually a task that was reserved for a Gentile slave. So the job was so dirty and so gross that a Jewish slave couldn't even do it for their master. It had to be a Gentile or a non-Jewish slave because feet were disgusting and dirty. They wore sandals or they wore barefoot. And the whole place is just dust and dirt. And people threw garbage in the streets. Water ran there down the streets as well that had all kinds of garbage and stuff in it. They had a lot of livestock. They walked through manures and when you, manure. And when you went through someone's house, it was customary because you were coming into their home to have your feet washed by, they owned their home, someone that worked for them or was one of their servants. And it was reserved for those people. And it was disgusting and it was gross and yet jesus stands up removes his outer garment which is basically taking on the posture of a servant he wraps a towel around his waist and he scrubs their feet and he comes to peter right he's going down the line of disciples boom 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 and he gets to peter and peter who often says things without thinking understands what i was talking about earlier how deeply disturbing this is and he says jesus are you going to wash my feet or lord are you going to wash my feet and it wasn't really a question it was more of a statement like you're not going to because peter got the imagery this is the god that he has claimed just moments earlier that he was actually christ the anointed one of God, and he says, surely, right, you're not, you're not washing my feet. Like, here you are kneeling at my feet. You remember when Peter was called, back when he was sitting on the boat with Jesus, and Jesus was teaching the crowd, and he looks at Peter, and he says, throw your nets overboard. And Peter throws his nets, and he has so many fish in there that they begin to break, and it says that Peter falls at his face, on his face, and at the feet of Jesus. This is the position that Peter is comfortable with feet of Christ but yet here's Christ at his feet and he says are you going to wash mine and Jesus says unless I wash you right unless I wash you you have no place with me and Peter basically right before that says you are not going to wash my feet I can't have it Jesus says you know you don't realize now what I'm doing for you but soon you will and Peter says no you shall never right which is a really bad idea to tell God no you shall never. Just in general, we'll probably end our sermon there. If God says, don't just follow Jonah, there's a whole bunch of places where you people say no, and things work out real bad. So Peter gets off the hook pretty easy. He says, no, you shall never. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And Peter turns his no to yes in like half a second. He says, well, then not just my feet. Like if, 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 if I need to be washed to be part of you, then my hands and my head, in other words, just take all of me. Jesus goes down the line, he washes their feet, and he gets done, and he basically says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? And they don't, right? They don't, because Jesus even tells Peter, you're not going to get it. And he says, listen, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's exactly what I am. I am your teacher, and I am your Lord. And what I have done for you, I want you to do for each other. So go and essentially wash each other's feet, right? And that's sort of the message in this story, one that we're really familiar with. But as I looked at it, and I think very simply and very linearly, I'm not a just a real super smart guy, but I think very 
kind of simplistically in my nature. And what I see here are, are a couple of really profound things that we know, but we've got to wrap our minds around that I think Jesus is getting at in this text. And the first is really simple, and it's this. It's that we, you and I, are called to love like Jesus loves, right? Now, if you've come to church with us at all, this is not going to be a new concept to you. But the idea is right there, and it's staring us in the face, and I don't think we can miss it. We are called to love as Jesus loved. But that love is really different from what you're thinking. Because think about this for a moment. When Jesus said, or John tells us in, in 13.1, he says, Jesus' hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So think about this for a moment. The full extent of Christ's love does not come on Friday when he's crucified. The full extent of his love does not come in a big public display. It doesn't come on the resurrection. John says the full extent of Jesus' love comes in a rented or a borrowed upper room behind closed doors with only 12 guys. And the full extent of his love is not some glorious display by which we have all this sort of jubilant racing around and hand clapping. The full extent of Christ's love comes when he removes his clothes and he scrubs the garbage off their feet. I'm struck by this idea. Because the truth is, is that I don't know how to deal with the image of Jesus loving me this way. Because like Peter, it's incredibly uncomfortable for me. I know my dirty, broken heart. I mean, imagine, right? The God of the universe knows everything about you. He knows all the mistakes you've made, the things that you did yesterday, the lies that your heart and your mind have told, the, the untruth that you have spoken, the dirtiness that no one ever knows, the things that you are most ashamed of in the entire universe. All laying bare before him, and yet that God and the full extent of his love kneeling at your feet to scrub your worst, now, I can get behind laying at the feet of Jesus and saying, God, I am not worthy of the way that you love me. Let me do what Mary did for you last couple of weeks. Remember where she takes that, that pint of pure nard perfume worth 25 grand, and she pours it out on her feet, and she wipes it with her hair. I can get behind that because I recognize my place in the presence of Almighty God. But what I can't get behind truly is this image of Jesus scrubbing dirt and garbage out of my life while I sit there in all of my glorious brokenness. And Peter got that. And this is the image that we have. Jesus going person to person to person. There's a couple of things about Jesus' love because we're called to love as Jesus loved. There's a couple of things about that that are really, really important. And the first is this, that Jesus loves without condition. Probably the most significant aspect of this whole story for me is that Jesus washes all their feet. And we know this from this gospel and the others, that although the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus, Judas had not yet left. So we know this from our gospel readings that Judas actually doesn't get up and leave until they all are done with communion and foot washing is happening before that takes place, before he gives them the Last Supper, which means that as Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he washed 
the feet of Judas. Now, you may or may not fully grasp the significance of that, but it hits me square in the heart. That the God, right, who made him and who knows full well that Judas is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver and a bag of lies and is going to betray him with a kiss, which is incredibly intimate, right? Who in a moment of hours is going to find Jesus, who has been so deeply embedded in grief that the scripture tells us that he is sweating blood, crying out to the Father, if there is any other way, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but you'll be done. That deeply emotional cry, knowing full well that he is going to die at the hands of a tool that was invented for two reasons, mockery and humiliation. That's a Roman cross. It was not created for any other reason. It was created to deter people from going against the Roman government, and they hung you out on a well-traveled road outside of town, and they said, if you do what this person does, this is what you will get. And it was humiliating because you were naked, and it was a mockery. And that's why they hung the charge above Jesus' head, king of the Jews, because the Romans were not going to have anyone else threatening Caesar's place as king. You want to be king? This is where you will end up. It was an instrument of torture and mockery and death. And Jesus knows that. And Judas, who has been, his heart has given to the enemy. And Jesus comes to him just like the others, and he washes all of their feet. I know me. I oftentimes feel incredibly unlovable. I know the things that seep through my mind and seep through my heart. I know the failings. I know the way that God has said things to me and I have ignored and I've turned blind eye and I've begged for those not to be true. I know the things that have come out of my mouth and things that have seeped through my soul. The fact that God loves me without condition turns my life upside down. And the truth is, whatever brought you here this morning, that exact truth is is for you. God loves you without condition. It means that you don't have to fix it all to be presentable to him. You don't have to have every answer for every theological question you don't know. You don't have to understand all of your anxiety and fear and perfectly trust the Lord. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to clean this thing up. You don't have to pretend because God knows and loves you without exception or condition anyway. It is the most freeing and liberating truth in all of Scripture that I do not have to perform that I don't have to earn, that I have to, do not have to merit God's love and acceptance. Like Judas, like Peter, who literally right that moment just told the God of the universe no, right? He loves us without condition. And he also loves in deep sacrifice, right? I mean, these disciples, let's be honest, they are a ragtag group of mess-ups at best. They're tax collectors, they're fishermen, they're uneducated, they have weird accents from Galilee, Right? They're just a group of people that everybody else considers a throwaway. In fact, we know this because the Pharisees even say nothing good comes out of Galilee, right? It was a a backwoods community of people that God had picked the most sort of annoying of all of them. Tax collectors, people hated them, they were thieves. And Jesus did what? He spent time with lepers and prostitutes, people that were filthy. And there's a social stigma attached to that. In fact, Jesus lost all of his religious prominence because of the people he hung out with. All that to say, 
that what this really gets at is that Jesus is calling us, right, to love as he loved. So he tells his disciples, wash each other's feet as I've done this for you. In other words, love each other, right, in the way that I love you. We're going to look at this in the next few verses in a couple of weeks, but he's going to tell them right after this, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. Meaning the single greatest evangelistic tool the church actually has is not the Evangel Cube that you buy at Mardell's, right? Or the Testaments that have a Bible verse on them that you give to your neighbor. It's actually how the church loves each other. And he says, love as I have loved you, without condition and with deep sacrifice. Look, people are hard to love, man. It's just true. The people in this church are hard to love, Right? I'm hard to love, but Jesus calls us to love the way that he loves. Your mom, your dad, your children, they're hard. A lot of you are sitting here with deeply broken relationships with people that you know are fractured, and that you know that God is calling you to reconciliation with, but you can't get over yourself because they owe me apology first. What if that's how God treated us? I will love you when you apologize to me for all that you've done. I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't even come close because I lie to God. And he loves me anyways. And it breaks my heart and calls me to a place of confession and repentance. But nonetheless, right, we are called to love as Jesus loved. But there's a unique thing here. You cannot do this on your own. Because the second part of this equation that we see here is that we have a desperate need for Jesus. You cannot muster up the ability to love like Jesus loves. It's impossible. We have a desperate need for Jesus, not only so that we can love like he does, but so that we can be cleansed and set free. This is what happens when he talks to Peter. Peter says, there is no way you're washing me. And you know what Jesus' comment to Peter is? He doesn't say, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. You know what he says to Peter? He says, unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. See, what Jesus was doing was not actually a ritual of foot washing. He's not calling the disciples to rent a space, set up a nonprofit, raise a bunch of money, and start a foot washing ministry, right? That's not what he's doing. He's actually doing something much bigger. He's talking about the cleansing life that comes through him. And he tells Peter, he goes, if I don't wash you, you can't be a part of me. Meaning that your dirty, sinful life, unless I cleanse you, that's where you're going to stay. It was a look forward for us, it's a look backward, but for Peter, it was a look forward for a moment of hours. That unless you allow me to cleanse you, you can have no part of the abundant life I give you here on earth or the eternal promise that comes in heaven. And that same statement is true for you, and it's true for me this morning. There is no way that you can have any part of God, any part of the Christian life, unless Jesus cleanses you. That is the entire purpose of the cross and resurrection. The cross and resurrection was not created so that we could gather once a year and give a nod to our religious roots. Most of us tend to believe that, culturally. We've got certain holidays, we show up on those holidays, we nod to our religious roots, and my mom won't get mad. We eat ham and we buy new dresses. Or we put on coats, right? <laughs> Jesus is raised, he want me to wear a coat, right? That's... That's what we do. We nod to our religious roots. But the truth is, Jesus is raised every day. Tomorrow will be the exact same as today. And without Jesus, 
the Bible is incredibly clear. We are not lost. We are not sick. We are dead in our sin. And that's why Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, you can't have any part of me. And so Peter, not even fully grasping it, says, then get all of me. There's a part of me that longs for that attitude that Peter has, which is rebellious at times, which is stubborn and prideful at times. But when Jesus says, like, I have to cleanse you, and Peter's like, then wash my entire body, because all I want is to be with you. That's what Peter's saying. And you know what? Peter doesn't figure it out, right? In a matter of hours, he's going to deny Jesus three times. But he was head over heels for the idea that he wanted all of Jesus. We have a desperate need for Jesus. I don't know what brought you here. I don't know why you're here. I don't know who drug you here. But that truth is the same. You will never be able to love like Jesus loves until you fully understand that Jesus is what you need. First of all, to cleanse and satisfy your own broken, aching, and lonely heart. There is no other option. So whatever brought you here, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never said, Jesus, I want you to cleanse me. I want to be free. I've been coming and doing this stuff all of my life, and I've never given my heart truly and fully to you. I want to know you. Then I want you to come up after worship, and I want you to just tell me and say, I want to know Jesus. Likewise, those of you that are drug stuff in here, garbage and anxieties and fears and failures, that we continue to not allow the Lord to remove from us, but we continue to fight and battle with him, tugging back and forth on what we think is best, when Jesus is just saying, I want to give you a glorious life, and yet you're fighting me on details that don't matter. Let me free you from the burden. Leave those burdens here this morning. There's no reason to carry them with you. Like Peter say, wash all of me. Hands, heart, feet, body, cleanse all of me. I can't just keep doing it. It's a uniquely amazing experience that Jesus on that same night gave the disciples this incredible table, right? It's not uh, an accident. It's amazing, actually. On that same night that he would scrub their feet and tell Peter, those words, right, that unless you let me cleanse you, wash you, you can have no part of me. He gave them this table. And this table is amazing because it is a single unifying factor of all of Christian history. It's what unites us with believers. It's the gift that was given to all of us. And like the foot washing, it was a look forward. They didn't get it, and rightly so. It was a look forward to Friday with its ultimate sight set on Sunday. But we have the beauty of being able to look back with hindsight and realize that Jesus' body and blood were given to cleanse us and to wash us. And it's amazing that we celebrate communion, of course, on the first Sunday of every month, and it falls on Easter, which is glorious, that this is the promise. This is the cleansing power, the body and blood of Christ that sets us free. So on that very night, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that everyone would run away, the night that he scrubbed their feet, after that dinner, he took this loaf of bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. 
In the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This morning, as we always do, we take communion by means of intinction, which means as you come to a station, you'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup and you'll take and eat. Paul tells us that this is not a table that is for anyone other than those that profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a denominational table. We don't care what background you're from or what brought you here. As long as you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, this table is for you. Paul also tells us not to take it lightly, but to examine our hearts, right? So we invite you as Dawn and our worship team uh, begin to lead, that you would just contemplate in your heart, and then when you're ready, would come up and take communion in the kind of chaotic way that we do it. We have three stations this morning. We'll have one down here in this corner, one right here at this table, and one in the very back, and uh, I'll invite our servers to come forward as we pray this morning. Lord, we thank you that these are ordinary elements that you have used for an extraordinary and incredible purpose. God, we are grateful that you have loved us in such a magnificent way. God, that you have given us this full demonstration of your extravagant and incredible and amazing love. Lord, we pray that you would take this ordinary bread and cup and that you would do the extraordinary with it. You would nourish our hearts and our lives and our bodies. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. As you feel led and called and as Don leads worship, we invite you to come down and take part of this meal with us. If you need a gluten-free option, they're down at this station here. So make your way.